Well, we have the joy now to open the word of God together. But before we do that, let's bow together in a word of prayer asking the Lord's blessing. Our Father, we come to your word with reverence and with humility, recognizing that these are your words. From you, the living God, our creator, the one who made each one of us, the one whose standard is perfect, the one who sent your son to come and live among us that we might be redeemed. I pray now that you help us to listen with attentive hearts and with humble spirits who pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, indeed, Easter today, if you were to just glance around at the cultural products that are made, you would conclude that Easter is simply a time of pastels or a spring celebration of some sort and that somebody got their biology mixed up and somehow bunnies lay eggs. Uh, and that then we're supposed to pick up those eggs that this messed up bunny is laying. Um, and, you know, again, we're all a little puzzled, but of course we like the candy and so we, we move along with it and enjoy the, again, the cultural products that are there. But Easter as a holiday, as my brother Bernie reminded us, is not so much just an annual springtime festival as much as it is a commemoration or an anniversary, a reminder of some events that took place. Events that took place over 2,000 years ago. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was born in and around 5 AD, if we take the biblical chronology and attach it to secular history, we can land around the date of about 5 BC. And he was born of a virgin named Mary. How that, does that work? The Bible simply says that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she was with child. He grew up as a normal human being like you and I. He grew up in a, in a small Israeli village in northern Israel known as Nazareth. And he was there until he was called into uh, ministry by his heavenly father. He began to preach and to teach to the people of Israel, declaring that he indeed was the promised Messiah. He was the promised son of God that had been prophesied and foretold so many times throughout Israel's history. And that Jesus was indeed the perfect son of God. He never sinned or did anything wrong. He never lied. He never stole. He never said an unkind word, never had a dirty thought. He never did anything wrong. And yet in spite of that perfect track record, he was rejected, hated by his countrymen. He was nailed to a cross outside Jerusalem in the first century. After hanging upon that cross for six hours, he was taken down by a friend and buried in a tomb nearby. That tomb was sealed with a large stone so that nobody could go in and take the body. No one could mess with the body. In fact, the Jewish authorities, as we read in our passage just a few minutes ago, stationed guards outside to make sure nobody tried anything. And so Jesus laid in the tomb 
in the parts of three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But on Sunday morning, something remarkable happened. The ground shook and the stone was rolled away by the mighty power of God and there sitting upon the stone was an angel. The ladies who had gone to the tomb to try to anoint Jesus' buried body found an empty tomb. The stone rolled away and angels there declaring that Jesus is no longer there. It would make sense that you would find him here because he was indeed buried here on Friday, but he is no longer here because according to his word and according to prophecy, he has conquered death. He has risen from the grave and he now is alive. Those are the events of Easter. Primarily the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that took place in time and space upon this planet. But there was more than just a death of a person, a death of a man. It was different than every other death. And indeed, his resurrection provided something that had never been seen before. And you see, ever since that weekend, in the first century, people down through the centuries have had their lives changed by those events of Easter. This happened not just because Jesus came to put on a show and people were wowed by the show, but he came into enemy territory to conquer death and to save sinners. He came to save people from their sin and their guilt, sin that had spread to all people everywhere. He came to rescue them out of that sin. He came to save them from the just judgment that their sins deserved. Now, some of you here today may have heard this message these, about these events of Easter uh, for as long as you can remember. You've heard these events. You've heard this story, this gospel message about Jesus time and again. Others of you may be here today and you are completely unfamiliar. You've vaguely heard about Jesus, but you don't know much about what he did or why it matters. And so others of you may be here because uh, maybe you tried church. Maybe you tried the Christian thing a while ago and now you're giving it another shot. But whatever your background, whatever your thoughts about Jesus here today, I encourage you all to listen to the testimony, to a story of a man who was radically changed by those events of Easter. We're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning hearing this man's testimony. And we're going to hear about it in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. And I invite you to turn there if you have a copy of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have some provided for you in the, the pew rack directly in front of you. And you can find our passage on page 1166, 1166 of those pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible that you personally own, we'd love to send you home with one today. And you can simply go to our Connect Corner after the service and we'd be able to put one into your hands that you can take home and read for yourself. This morning, as we look at how the events of Easter, the life, burial, and resurrection of Jesus changed one man's life, we will see how Easter can change our lives too. The book of Philippians was written by a man named Paul. Paul 
known to church history as the Apostle Paul. He was a respected Jewish teacher and leader until Jesus got a hold of him, until his life was radically changed. And our verses this morning will tell part of that story. And so we're going to be reading this morning from Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 4 through 11. So follow along as I read, beginning in verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. From these verses this morning, we're going to see four ways that the, Paul's life was changed by the events of Easter. And as we do so, we're going to see that our lives too can be changed in precisely the same ways, if we would let it. And so the first way that Paul's life was changed by the events of Easter, we find in verses 7 and 8, and it's this. Easter changed what he valued. Easter changed what Paul valued. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This verse introduces us to the terms gain and loss. These are accounting terms. Those of you, uh, a numbers brain or accounting uh, brain would, can relate to this. It shows that Paul was evaluating his life based upon a future audit. There was going to be an audit on his life and the balance sheet was going to be, the ledger sheet was going to be pulled out and there were certain things that he saw as losses, as liabilities, and certain things he saw as assets. But verse 7 says that he, sometime in his past, went through a radical shift. There was a one time that he looked at his balance sheet and he thought he was in the black. But a, in a sudden change of events, he realized he was deep in the red. Those things that he once thought were gain were actually loss. He says, verse 7, whatever gain I had, what were those gains? Well, he listed them for us in the verses just previous, in verses 5 and 6. Let's review those briefly. And we could group these into two categories. The first is some natural advantages. Paul had some natural advantages by which he took pride in. And he saw them as gains. Verse 5, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
For us Gentile ears, these don't mean much. But for those who were Jews in that day and time, this was the highest pedigree. He recognized that he was born a true Jew. He wasn't a convert to Judaism, but he actually was born a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. His parents followed the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day of his life, and he knew his tribal ancestry of the tribe of Benjamin. But this is what he was born into, but then he took it to the next step. Not only did he recognize his natural advantages, but he realized and he attained to some personal advantages then listed next. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. He was a part of the strictest sect of the Jews. He followed the law to a T. He made sure that he did exactly as the law required. He was in the upper echelons of Jewish society, a Pharisee. But not only was he a Pharisee on the outside, but on the inside, notice what he says next. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. There in the first century, after Jesus had resurrected and the church was being established, the Jewish authorities did all that they could to hunt and to pursue the, the Christians. Those who had converted to Christ and were following Jesus, the Messiah, they were considered the enemy. And so Paul, there in that time, recognized that he had unmatched zeal. He did everything he could to hunt down those who were called Christians. In other words, he was the most passionate Pharisee, the most passionate Jew. But lastly, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, he so watched his life. He so considered how he lived, how he, he, he ordered each moment of his day so that he did not transgress the Old Testament law. He was meticulous. In fact, he can claim in some sense blameless. There's no way if someone could look at his life and, 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 and hold it up against the law, there was nothing that he fell short in, or so he thought. And so this list of accomplishments, this list of gains would have impressed the average Jew on the street. We could think of our own list of people in our day that might impress us. Someone maybe who was born into wealth, someone who went to Ivy League schools and has given their lives to not only building a multi-million dollar company, but also has given away their wealth to great charity and great social causes to help the needy of the world. And we can just stand back and go, wow, that person was born into a lot and that person did a lot. That was the case for Paul. He had true gains that he could feel like he could put his name to. But notice this list has a decidedly religious tone to it. And the reason for this is that the confidence that Paul walked in and stood in was not just to stand in confidence before other people. He was concerned about standing in confidence before God. These advantages that he listed enabled him to have confidence that he was on the right side of the ledger of God's accounting. He was doing the right things. He had jumped through the right hoops. His ledger book of gains aligned with God's. He saw them as gains before God, but at some point that all changed. Verse 7 says, Whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Jesus, he counted all those things, all those things that he'd built into his life, all the things that he'd spent years and years seeking to attain. He counted as loss. 
They were stripped of their value. No longer were they assets, they were now liabilities. They were lost on the balance sheet. They were not just negated, but they were now detrimental and harmful to him. Why were they detrimental? Why were they suddenly lost? Because they kept him from true salvation. In other words, he thought that these things that he was doing, friends, were rungs of the ladder that he was climbing to get into favor with God, to get into heaven. But in a moment, he realized that all those things together were really just one big slide, having him slide right into hell. And what caused this change? It's because he encountered the risen Christ. He came face to face with Jesus who rose from the grave. This story is told for us in the book of Acts chapter 9. At the time he was named Saul and the account goes like this. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is to the church, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Again, this describing his zeal of persecution for the church. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And after he regained his sight, the text says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Do you see the radical change that happened when he met Jesus on that road to Damascus? As Jesus stopped him in his tracks, as he was marching off in his pride and his own accomplishments, thinking that he was doing what is right, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, stopped him in his tracks and changed his life forever. And that's what Paul is recounting here. Jesus Christ is the decisive difference in Paul's life. You see, that event took place 25 years prior to this being written. And you might ask, okay, that took place 25 years ago, Paul, but, but do you still consider all those things as lost? I mean, haven't you balanced out in your perspective a little bit? Notice what he says in verse 8. Indeed. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He doesn't regret that assessment. He has not changed in his opinion that to renounce everything was, was loss for Christ. In fact, he's gone from saying those gains were lost to saying everything is lost. He's broadened his view. He's become more radical. He's doubled down. He counts all of that as loss 
for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, he says. Nothing was worth more to Paul than knowing Jesus. And he writes very personally here. This is the only place in all of Paul's writings, and he wrote many letters to the churches. Of all the writings that we have, this is the only place where he calls Jesus my Lord. He's saying, this one who did a great thing in, in history, he is my Lord. He changed my life. There's an intimacy here. There's an intensity that's here. Paul is writing very intensely about his experience. This Lord, the one who went to great lengths, as chapter 2 tells us, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to take on the form of a man and to become obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. This Lord who, who humbled himself so far and this Lord who's now been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God, that Lord is Paul's Lord, his personal Lord. You see, this reveals what is true of all Christians, that fundamental to being a Christian is knowing Jesus Christ. You see, a Christian is not one who primarily just goes to church or someone who reads their Bible or obeys a certain set of rules or holds a certain set of cultural values. A Christian fundamentally is someone who knows Jesus Christ. And a Christian doesn't just know about Christ. It's not just someone that was an intellectual knowledge about, oh yeah, I know who Jesus is. I've heard the stories. I've heard the teaching. But knowing Christ is much more personal than that. It's, it's knowing intimately who he is. But see, there are many people that, that claim to know about Jesus but have never experienced him. Much like a, a blind man may say that he knows about color but he's never experienced color. So there are those who say they know about Christ but have never experienced him. But knowing Christ means you've entered into a relationship with him. That you know him personally and intimately. There is a shared enjoyment. There is a communion, you could say, that goes back and forth between the two. And Paul says the fact that he was brought into this relationship with Jesus means the, more than anything else to him. Everything else can go. Everything else can be stripped away because I know Christ. In fact, he goes even further. If you, if you think he hasn't gone far enough, look where he goes next. He says, for his sake, middle of verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He counts them as rubbish. This is somewhat of a muted term in our English translations. In the first century, this was actually a, a vulgar Greek word for excrement, for rotted food, for dung. It represents all things revolting. And so Paul is saying in the strongest terms possible that everything else in his life is revolting to him other than Christ. The there's no comparison. And this reminds us, friends, that all the things that we can take confidence in, all the things that make us feel good, all the things that make us feel like we can have a good standing before God on that final day, if it's not Christ, it's worthless. If it's not Christ, it gains us nothing. All these things that he thought was profitable, all these things he took pride in, 
were worth throwing away because he knew the risen Christ. Friends, it doesn't matter what it is that we take confidence in. There is nothing that will enable us to have confidence before God on that final day other than standing with Jesus Christ. We must follow the example of the Apostle Paul and seek to know him. He is our only confidence. He is the only one that we can stand with when the audit is done upon our lives. We're tempted to find our confidence in other things, to try to live in our authentic selves or to stand on a certain social issues of the day or we're tempted to want to be on the right side of history as it's often stated. But what our society often fails to take into account is that the final audit will not be done by future generations. Our final audit will be done by the God of history, the God who created all things. And so the question we all need to answer is, will the values and treasures of our lives pass that final audit? So we see here how the events of Easter changed what Paul valued. But let's look next at how Easter changed what Paul trusted in. That's the second way that Easter changed Paul's life. It changed what he trusted in. Look in verse 9. It says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, have you ever been given access somewhere, maybe it's to a special place that you yourself couldn't get access to, but because of their credentials, you were able to get in? I think of a few years ago when we were given some passes to get into Disneyland for our family. And so we get up early, pack up the kids into the minivan, and we're heading down to Anaheim. We're going to go to Disneyland. And, you know, you're going without any tickets, without anything on you to show at the gate because we're not depending upon any of our own credentials. If we had walked up to the gate and said, hey, we're here, then they'd say, and who are you? There would be nothing that we would have to be able to get us in. We were depending upon our friends' credentials, depending upon their position and the access that they have to be able to get us in to Disneyland. And so in a small way, this captures what the Bible says about trusting in Christ. That when it comes to getting access into heaven, we can't trust our own credentials. We can't trust anything that we have, anything that we've achieved, anything that we've gained for being able to bring out on that last day and have us access heaven. We need to trust someone else's credentials, and that is Christ's. But you see, everyone lives their lives trusting in something. We all live our lives trusting that something that is done by us or someone else is going to help us out in that final day. They're trusting in something for the peace of living each day knowing that they're living a good life and that they're on the right side of history. In the final estimation, we all want to be thought of as doing the right thing, don't we? But there's something that we're trusting in to be able to get us to doing that right thing. But see, the Bible is clear that each one of us, every single human being, is hardwired from the womb to do what is wrong. And in fact, to not trust anybody else but to trust ourselves. We naturally trust our own goodness. We think we've done some good things. We've lived a good life. We often have a scales mentality, right, where our bad deeds are on one side and our good deeds are on the other, and we all hope and pray and, and think that our good deeds will outweigh our bad someday. 
But the Bible's clear that we actually don't have any good deeds. The Bible says that all of our good deeds are like filthy rags in God's estimation. So if we're actually looking at a scales, there's nothing on the good deed side. And that's a cut to our pride, but it's true. There is nothing that we can do to make us pleasing in God's sight. Oh, sure, they might help people around us, but they're not going to ultimately count when it's needed in trying to get God to be pleased with us. In fact, as Paul found out, all those things that we think are good and make us feel pretty good before others and should receive the applause of others and therefore should re receive the applause of God are actually what make us abhorrent. They are revolting in God's sight. Now, everyone in our society today is pretty quick to admit that, that listen, nobody's perfect, right? We all know that, that, that no one lives a perfect life, that there's all ways that we mess up, but listen, we're trying. We're trying to do our best, trying to do what we can. And so we tend to think that because we're all flawed and because we all kind of give, cut each other some slack, that God's going to cut us some slack, that he's going to grade on some sort of scale and that we're going to pass and be okay. But it doesn't work that way. Because God, you see, is holy and perfect. He is absolutely just. And in order for people to dwell with him in heaven, they have to be perfect like he is. And so you see, our problem is twofold. Not only are we not innocent, we're flawed in some way, but we don't have any positive righteousness. We have negative righteousness. We have unrighteousness to our name. And therefore, we are guilty and deserving of punishment. Think of it this way. Think of any major sports team, right? A perfect season. Perfect season for a sports team is if they win every single game and lose none of them. Major League Baseball has got 162 games. A perfect season in baseball would be 162 to 0 for the record for the year. Now, someone could say, well, my team has a perfect record, but they just haven't played it in games yet. They're 0 0. They've got no losses to their name. And there's a sense in which that's true. And there's a part of that in which you could, you could to extra extrapolate that onto humanity, you could say that Adam and Eve, the first two humans who were created innocent, were like that 0-0 team. They indeed were innocent, but they had no unrighteousness. They had no sins to their name, nor did they have any positive righteousness. They were just strictly innocent. The problem is, in order to get us into heaven, we need a perfect season. If we're going to use that baseball analogy, our record for our life needs to be 162 to 0. It can't be 82 to 80. It can't just have more wins than losses. God is looking for a perfect season. And yet the problem is, for each and every one of us, our record is actually 0 and 162. You see, friends, we need forgiveness of our sins and we need positive righteousness. We need a positive record to our name. If you think of it in accounting terms, we don't just need to get to zero. We need to get to the positive amount that God requires. Forgiveness erases the negative and gets us to zero. But we need something more. We don't just need forgiveness. We need righteousness. We need purity. We need perfection. And we can't produce it. The Bible's clear about that. The Bible says, 
Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. There is an audit, there is an accounting that will be taking place, and there is righteousness that is needed for each one of us. And Paul understood that, which is why he says, look at it, verse 9, that he would be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He knew that all the good deeds that he racked up in his life would amount to nothing. It wouldn't be righteousness, and it wouldn't work. He wanted to be found in Christ. He wanted to be found in the only one who came upon this earth, that tread upon this earth and lived a perfect life. The only one who has 162 to zero record. And the great thing about Christ is he's looking to share that record with us. He's looking to dispense and give of his righteousness so that we might stand righteous before God. On that final day, when he had to stand before God the judge, Paul wanted to be found in Christ because his righteousness was not going to cut it. The goodness that he had collected to his name would not stand the test of divine justice. And so by trusting in Jesus, he would receive Christ's righteousness. That's what he says. He says, the righteousness, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, friends, listen, each one of us are deserving of the wrath of God for our sins. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. But listen, the very God who deserves to punish you and punish me for our sins is the very God that has provided righteousness for you. Notice that he says, what's the source of this righteousness? He says the righteousness from God. In other words, the God who's the divine judge is also the God who's the divine Savior. The one who offers righteousness to all if we would believe. Notice how it comes to us. What, it de what does it depend on? It's through faith. In other words, friends, this righteousness doesn't happen automatically. We can't just assume that we're going to get this righteousness. This must be believed. We must trust in Jesus, rely upon him, place the full weight of ourselves and our future and our righteousness upon him. Trusting him alone, that if he fails, I fail. You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ on the cross was given our sin. And he was punished for our sin. The wrath of God fell upon him. And yet, that was only half of the exchange. Our sin went to him, but through that, righteousness comes to us who believe. The same writer Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, get this. Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago so that you and I can be counted righteous in him today. That is the good news. That is the gospel that we can have salvation today and have confidence before God on that final day when judgment comes. And so we cling to Christ. We want to be found in him, not clinging to our own righteousness because there's nothing that we can do that will stand the test. 
This is what the hymn writer taught us in the old hymn, Rock of Ages. He writes, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Friends, we can't conjure up enough passion and tears for God. We can't conjure up enough obedience, obeying God every moment of every day, loving him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. We can't do it. There's nothing that we can do to fulfill the law, to atone for sin. And therefore, we throw ourselves upon Christ. We trust him and him alone. And we want to be found in him as Paul did. So, Paul's testimony here shows us that Easter can change what we trust in and showing us a way that we can be righteous before God. So, two things that we've seen how Easter has changed Paul's life. Let's look now at the third way that Easter has changed Paul's life, and that was Easter changed how he lived. Easter changed how Paul lived. Verse 10 continues Paul's argument for what he is seeking to gain. Look at it. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So he's renounced his past. He's let go, counted as lost, rubbish. And he did this so that he might know Christ. And verse 10, he repeats that again, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, you might go, wait a minute, didn't Paul already say that he knows Christ? Why is he, like, seeking to still know Christ? Because isn't that what he did 25 years ago? Isn't that what he referenced, verse 7 and verse 8? That he already knows Jesus? So why is he, like, seeking to press on to know Christ? What does it, that mean? Well, it highlights a reality that when someone comes to faith in Jesus, when someone becomes a Christian, that their knowledge of Jesus doesn't stop there. It's not something that they simply know about Jesus and then that information about Jesus stops right there. There's a continual relationship with him that continues on through life. It's an ongoing relationship. I mean, think of marriage. When a man and a woman are married together, they know each other. They know something about each other and it delights, they delight in each other at that wedding, at that time of marriage. But if a marriage, if a relationship between a husband and wife stays at that place where it was on the wedding day, then it's a marriage doomed for disaster. Because there's to be a growing relationship, a growing intimacy, a growing knowledge of each other that is to develop over the years. As we learn to know more about each other, we grow closer to each other and the hearts are wed together. The same is true with Christ. We know Christ when we first believed in him, but we come to know him better and better, deeper and deeper as the years go on, as we study his word, as he works his power in and through us, as we seek to follow him through thick and thin. He is with us, and we, there's a participation, a fellowship, a relationship that is found with Christ. And so Paul is saying here, he goes, listen, I've counted everything as loss. I'm trusting in Jesus and his righteousness and I am pressing on to know Christ deeper. I want to know him better than I do today. Every day was a mission to know Christ deeper. And so as he does this, Paul says the way that he lives 
is not shaped by himself. The way that he lives is shaped by Christ. You could say that he lives an Easter-shaped life because it's shaped by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Did you notice that in verse 10? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Do you see the two events of Easter, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are both included here? He's living an Easter-shaped life, a Christ-shaped life. He says first that he lives to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus in his life. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered death and he released a power into this world that had been previously unknown. Sinners who were dead in their trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, are now made alive. Corpses are brought back from the dead spiritually. But those like Paul They've been given a spiritual life. They've been renewed. They've been a new creation in Christ. It describes the Christian. But he says, not just to become a new creation at one point in his Christian life, but he wants to live his life in the power of Christ's resurrection. What does that look like? Well, I believe he recognized that this power had a power to destroy and a power to build up. It had a power to shape him to be like Christ. And so first it was seeking to destroy all those things that were inside Paul that were in rebellion against Christ. In other words, the resurrection power of Jesus has the power in Paul's life to destroy sin, to put to death the sin that is found in his heart. Defeat his sins of fear and anxiety, of lust and of power. This resurrection power will continue to surge into his life and bring victory over sin and unrighteousness. But then it would also build him up into the character of Christ. He wanted Christ's power to give him uncommon boldness, unyielding resolve, and undeterred passion for Christ. He wanted, in other words, the engine of his life to be Christ in his resurrection. Where did he go for power and resources for the strength to continue on and to live for Christ day in and day out? It wasn't in himself. When he went to his own, his own energy supply, it was depleted. But when he'd go to Christ, there would be a constant surging of power from his resurrection. He didn't want to fall back into his old habits of living in the flesh. He wanted to instead live in the strength of his new self in Christ. But as he lived in the power of Christ's resurrection, the path that it would lead him on was not a bed of roses. was not a path of ease and comfort. Notice what he says. He says, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. As he lived in the resurrection power of Jesus, it would lead him into the experience of sharing in Christ's sufferings. He would experience the hate and the persecution that Jesus received. Jesus has indeed promised his followers that if you follow me, Jesus says, you will know deep and lasting joy. You will know joy that you've never known before, but he doesn't promise a life of ease and comfort in this life. In fact, Jesus said this to his followers. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He gave his disciples full warning. 
If you're going to follow after me, there could be hate and persecution coming your way. And so what Paul recognized is that as Paul lived in the power of the resurrection of Jesus, it put him in the bullseye of the world's condemnation and persecution. He truly experienced a fellowship, a sharing in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He lived the cross-centered life. And this is true for all those who have trusted in Jesus. If you believe in him and trust in him as we just talked about, trusting in his righteousness alone to, to save us on that final day, then we can know that there will be suffering in this life. But why would Christians, why would people ever sign up for this? Why would people say, yeah, I'll follow you, Jesus, and I'll gladly take suffering in this life? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense humanly. Why would they live in the power of Christ and be persecuted for their faith? It's because Christians are not living for this world. Christians recognize that this is not our home. We live for the world to come. And this is where our passage ends this morning. And the final way that Easter changed Paul's life. Easter changed what he lived for. Easter changed what Paul lived for. Look in verse 11. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now in the midst of this world, we all have to find something to, to cling on to, some bit of hope. There's much difficulty that we experience in this life. Whether you're a Christian or not, this, this world has pains and suffering. We, the Bible says it lives under the curse of sin and therefore there is, sin, there is suffering and pain that is in this life. And I know that every person here has been touched by that fallenness, touched by that brokenness, touched by that suffering in some way. And so we all are looking for something to hang on to, something to cling to. What is going to give us hope in the midst of the darkness? What is going to give us hope in the midst of the pain? There's got to be something that we can cling to that will make all the difficulty worth it. It reminds me of the second installment of The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And there's a scene in the, that movie where Frodo and Sam are at a low point. And, and Frodo says, I, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can press on. And Sam rises and offers hope to his dear friend in the midst of what seems to be their darkest moment. And he offers hope by pointing his friend to a future day when everything will be made right again. He turns to Frodo and says, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because, you, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. 
even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Friends, verse 11, Paul tells us what he was holding on to. What was it in the midst of all that suffering that he just spoke about in verse 10 gave him hope? He says that it's the destination at the end of life. That is the resurrection from the dead. His destination was a new body, a resurrected body. And this is not because he was dissatisfied with the way his body looked or felt. He knows that when he's resurrected from the dead, he will receive a body that will never perish, a body that will never experience pain, a body that will be perfect and glorified. In other words, in this life, he groans. There's, there's a weight of the pain and the suffering that he bears, and he's looking forward to the day when that pain will be gone. It'll be no more. There'll be no more tears, no more hurting. And he knows that day will come. And so he strives each and every day, seeking to attain the resurrection from the dead that he knows will happen once he is dead and he will be raised again to new life when Christ returns. Paul's hope, in other words, what he lived for was not in this life. He was not hoping to attain to a certain level of wealth and comfort in which he could be padded from the pain and the dissatisfaction of this life because he knew the truth that no matter how much money you have, no matter how comfortable your possessions and your life, you can never escape the pain. You can never escape the dissatisfaction that things seek to offer. You talk to some of the richest people in the world today and through history, and they will tell you that they were some of the most ha unhappiest because money and wealth and things of this world cannot buy you happiness. Paul knew that, and he knew that Christ was the only place that he would be satisfied. It was only through him that he would attain to that resurrection from the dead. Paul was looking to the next world. For those who trust in Christ, the next world is the better one. Our best life is not in the here and now, but in the then and there. Because Jesus conquered death and rose from the grave, all those who trust in Jesus will be resurrected as well. Jesus said in John 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, that's him, and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus promises to resurrect all those who trust in him. And so that is what Christians live for. The resurrection when Jesus Christ returns to earth. And this makes all of our suffering in this life worth it. And so it prompts us to ask the question, what is it that you live for? What is it that gives you hope in those dark days? What is it that you're clinging to? Friends, we've looked this morning at four ways that Easter changed the Apostle Paul's life. We saw how the death and resurrection of Jesus took Paul's life from going one direction and it went a whole, totally 180 degree in a complete other direction. And what this tells us is that it, the events of Easter can change our lives as well. This 
reality of conversion, of being changed from living life our own way in rebellion against God, trusting in our own righteousness to get us into heaven or to, to, to be satisfied someday in the final judgment of things. Jesus can change our lives, change each one of us so that we now live for Christ, so that we now recognize that our best life is not in the here and now, but in the then and there. Jesus wants to change each one of our lives. He wants you to live differently because he wants your best. But see, in our sin, we turn to ourselves. We turn inward, we turn selfish, and, we, and our sin destroys relationships. But instead, he wants us to be renewed. He wants the resurrection power to surge through us that we might be new creations in Christ, that we might live a different life, and that we might have our hopes set on that which this world cannot offer. But it requires that we repent, that we confess before God, yes, God, I have sinned against you. My sins are deserving of your wrath and your punishment. I am that guilty. But then as we recognize our guilt and the desperate situation that we're in, we look to Christ, the one who's crucified for us, the one who was raised on our behalf, and we trust in him and say, but I'm clinging to him and his righteousness. Friends, like the Apostle Paul, you must make an accounting for your soul. There will be a, a divine audit of your life. And the question is, does your ledger sheet line up with God's? When he, the great accountant, does an audit of your life, will it show loss or gain? The answer to that question will be determined by what you do with Jesus. Will you embrace him as your only hope? Or will you continue trusting in yourself or something else? Jesus said that in a future day, he's going to return and he's going to repay everyone according to what he has done. And so we must all answer to him. But he leaves us with this question. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? There's a way to gain the world, but lose what's most important. And I ask you, do you want that? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please work in each one of our hearts and lives this morning. We thank you for the testimony of Paul that says that there is life found in Christ, that this world cannot satisfy, that we must trust in him alone. And I pray, Father, for all those who are here, all those who are listening, that you would enable them to think about that final day, think about that final audit of their lives, and may they seek to not gain the whole world but lose their soul, but may they seek to gain their soul if they lose the world. Oh, Father, may your spirit teach these things to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.